Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. We've got something that we're really excited about. So we've decided to do another series with a different service provider to help educate the audience on a topic that's fairly well known, but also an integral part of, uh, of equipment that our drilling fluid passes through every day that we were pumping mud. And that's known as the drill bit. So in this series, we decided to bring on a special guest, Sterling Robinson, business development from Verrill International, to discuss the relationship between drilling fluids and drill bits, along with how drilling fluids can ultimately impact drill bit performance, and then obviously just talking about drill bits in general. Uh, Sterling, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How's things been for you lately, man? Uh, to, to say they've been uh, different would be uh, an understatement. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. The understatement of the of 2020, right? Yeah. No, no I mean, they, uh, everything's been good. Good, man. Good. Well, uh, well, 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 yeah, that's great. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, it's something that, you know, we talked about for a while. And I think it's a good time to do it. So uh, first and foremost, we'd like to, you know, give a little background about yourself and how you ended up in oil and gas. And, and, you know, more importantly, something that I know that maybe not a lot of people do is why, as, as you as a degreed engineer, decided to stick it out on the service side. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting story. So if you, if you don't mind just giving a high-level background, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. So um, I guess the, uh, the general r- resume rundown is I uh, got my mechanical engineering uh, degree from uh, uh, OU, and I ended up getting a job at NASA. For me, the, uh, thinking about the oil field, you would think uh, growing up in Oklahoma would be natural. But I grew up as a car guy. So NASA sounded really cool. Yeah. Uh, it, didn't t- it didn't take long being at NASA to realize that I didn't like the contract government style. You know, it, it's, we call it the redundancy department of redundancy. It, uh, you just, I could do my work in about two hours and then, but I had to be there for eight. Mm-hmm. I didn't ever feel like I had ownership of it because every person had, there was, because there was so much redundancy on it. I ended up meeting a, a good friend who uh, you've had uh, on, on your show, Bo Daniel. Yeah. I had, I met Bo through a mutual friend. They both, they both went to Baylor and he's telling me about this drill bit. And I'm like, well, I don't know what a drill bit is. I grew up in a machine shop. And, uh, but he's discussing, you know, how, how it's, how it's used and what, you know, that he did designs one and, uh, he gets to design it. And then in three months he gets to see a, a result of what this actual, um, you know, design piece does. I was like, man, that sounds really cool. Cause for me, it takes three or four years of certification to see some, my, you know, my widget on the space shuttle make a change. Right. Yeah. Cause there's. Uh, and so that was, that was what, what really attracted me to, to oil and gas. And then particularly, I guess, uh, drill bits in that sense, you know, h- had I met someone in a different field, you know, things could, things could be different, but this is the, 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 the path that, that I ended up on. I nice. feel like so many oil field stories are, they were hiring or I knew a guy, um, you know, I got my degree in electrical engineering and I am a drilling fluid guy now. And, uh, 
obviously that, you know, at the very least as a, me- a degreed mechanical engineer, you probably see a lot more of the relationships and, um, that sort of thing where I, I can't turn fluids into circuits nearly as well. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll drill with electrical fluid one day, hey, Matt. This could be my chance. I was going to say, it, it's, it's 2020. We have to adapt. So, I mean, it may be time to shock the system, literally. Hey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Well, uh, Stern, before we get talking about drill bits, you know, I, I, what I, again, uh, what I find interesting is, is historically on the service side, a lot of folks that move into you know, move up the ladder and then get into business development and sales and, and even more in the technical role come from the field uh, due to the fact that a lot of drilling or a lot of petroleum, mechanical, chemical engineers elect to go on the operator side. So can you talk a little bit about your experience as a, as a degree engineer on the service side and maybe how that's really helped you from a technical perspective throughout your career? So I started out at designing, designing roller cones, uh, which is a whole nother aspect that we'll get into <laughs> yeah um, but uh and then and quickly started to design pdcs as the market was growing rapidly towards pdcs um and then i went into as an applications slash field engineer in um south texas which right when the eagleford blew up uh became i mean we the the amount of development we had to do in that time frame to develop to this this new uh, shell play was i mean it was it was massive we basically took three years development and had to shove it into a year in a company that was uh that functions as big companies do so that 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 took a lot of effort to get the get the system moving and and then i ended up being placed in-house with with oxy and that's kind of that's how I developed my relationship with those guys, and you know, got basically the closer I got to the to the customer, the more I enjoyed what I was doing, the more effective I felt that I was, because I felt like I could bring my knowledge plus uh, my ability to share what the customer needs back to my company. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's huge. A- I I think that's uh, it's so true. Besides the the satisfaction of you know, meeting a customer's needs or solving a problem. The other part is learning about how they're thinking. Um, because I think a lot of times in the service industry, we get stuck in, we've got, we got products we get excited about, but it may not be something the customer is actually, you know, thinking about sometimes, you know, that's because it's off their radar and other times it's, we're not chasing the right need. Um, and so the closer you get to a customer, you know, that that's why we, we did a podcast episode recently on on customer schools, and one of the reasons I love to teach them is because I get that exposure. And I can imagine in-house when you're seeing the day-to-day ins and outs, you really have that connection. And to be able to tie that into the technology side and actually get products made, um, that's got to be a pretty nice little loop to be able to see, you know, see problem, solve problem, feel good. Exactly. And that's, uh, I guess that's probably the, the reward system that's kept me on the, on the, the, the server side is that, you know, be, being able to, being able to solve those problems and to provide for that need and, and on a, on a very large scale of, you know, as, as a drilling engineer, you tend to focus maybe on, on your rig and, uh, where, you know, I'm looking at a whole entire basin or I'm looking at you know, the entire country. So it's just, I mean, it depends on which scale you like to play on, right? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great point. And, and we have, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be, you know, in those positions close to the customer. And then in, in the gratification and, and just the, 
the level of efficiency that you have to be able to, to come up with solutions and work together. Uh, I, I feel like it helps, you know, just the evolution of, of, you know, optimizing whatever it is at the plant, you know, whatever the initiatives are at the time, but, uh, nonetheless, you know, it's, it's great to see, you know, the amount of experience you have. Uh, and so with that being said, do you mind just running down, uh, you know, history, the, the history lane and, uh, tell us a little bit kind of, you know, roughly when drill bits became obviously drill bits have been around since we've been drilling wells, you couldn't have done it without it, but, uh, just kind of maybe the early adoption of drill bits and how they've evolved into what they are today, uh, I think would be really interesting for people. Yeah. So the, the, the first drill bit being a, a fishtail uh, design drill bit, which uh, is, is basically like kind of your woodworking uh, drill bit is works in the same fashion. Um, but it's, it's worth going ahead and jumping forward probably 40 years. And because that was, in, in, I think, in the 1800s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, whenever that was pro prolific. And then uh, really the next big technology was roller cones, which was the, the Baker Hughes patent. So ha having those, uh, those crushing and grinding aspects uh, was huge, especially when you don't have, we didn't have a lot of energy to put into the system back then. I mean, the, when you walk up to the the rig floor and it's the same as your you know the, your eyesight with, with it there's just <laughs> now you now you now you see a rig floor and it's 40 feet up because you know they're, they're everything that um all the strength that's involved to be able to carry the, the way to throw pipe right now uh so you know roller cones were when, when i started in 07 roller cones were I want to say 60% on the market within three years, they were about 20. So it quickly evolved into PDCs and, uh, Matt, as we were discussing, a lot of that, uh, goes, goes in, into the, uh, the acceleration of material science with respect to PDC cutters. Um, so in 2003 is when NOV came out with their, their leech patent. That was the big uh, was a big leap forward, and it wasn't you know as it got perfected, and as as we knew we knew what to deal with it, we dove really farther and farther down the the PDC side. So, and with with the PDC bit, we have the cutters which interact with the rock, uh, which are fixed fixed blades, and uh, in between the blades are is is a, a junk sod area, and then you know on down is the pin and everything else. So what would you say today in today's market, um, you know, mainly unconventionals, obviously, uh, the percentage of PDC to say roller cone, is it, I mean, from my, I would be willing to guess it's over 90, depending on maybe, you know, different situations or different formations that are being drilled, but is it, I mean, it's pretty. I would, I would argue in the performance market, if you will, like not remedial work or anything like that. Yeah. We're, we're looking at, 98%. Wow. Um, hmm. You've got your chimera out there, but I, it's hard to, I mean, that does have, it's part Rolicone, it's part PDC, but it's not, it, it's not like, that still has the PDC technology on it. So it's, I wouldn't put that in, in necessarily in the Rolicone category. So if you lump that in as well, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty much all of it. Like I, I can't recall the last time 
it's basically if someone needs to bail out a curve, maybe they throw it in. But yeah. even then, that that's in the that that's in the the small percentage, and only, maybe only in very specific applications that they would even do that. You know. So, oh, sorry. Yeah. With, with respect yeah. with respect to the change in the market, um. Is it that the cutters got so reliable that bit life is so long that you no longer want to use a cheap roller cone because you can extract the value from a PDC? I mean, I guess that was the thing is I thought PDC was always high performance and then roller cone was just kind of, a, a you know, the upper hole sections, larger hole sections. Um, and so I, I guess I was curious that that big transition, was it just PDCs got cheaper or was it that the reliability got so good that PDCs lasted longer and that that was the value proposition? What, what was the uh, what tipped the scale? I guess is my question. So there's there's probably a, there there's a market aspect to that, and then there's the, a technology aspect to that. Uh, uh, the market aspect is that in roller cones have always been a sold product. The bearings are wearable. They have a time time limit, uh, so they're you, you just sell it because we can refurbish the PDC and put new, new cutters in it. Uh, that's when the the rental market came in. So the cost per run for the customer uh, came down. At the same time, the performance was was increasing, uh, arguably exponentially. That's a good point. Hmm. Uh, so you mentioned a few terms there, and perhaps not a lot of people are, are familiar with the actual you know, major components of a drill bit. So can you talk about, you know, starting at the pin where the drill bit would screw into the bottom of the BHA, uh, just kind of working your way down uh, the, the main components to help give a good visual on, on, you know, maybe what this looks like for people that aren't familiar. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll do, I'll do my best with, uh, uh, with, without any visuals, right? Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> very basic, of course. Yeah. As, as we walk down from, from the pin, we have, um, uh, we start the body of the, of the bit, which is basically just cylindrical. It usually matches the same size as, as the pin. And then we go into the, uh, the gauge pad of the bit, which is what holds gauge, which is arguably one of the most important things a, a bit can do because you can't run casing. You can't, you, you can get BHA stuff. It gets really expensive if you don't hold gauge. Right. So then we have the gauge pads, which we, we adapt those for, any you know given application we've had some that are 12 inches long i would say the average now is probably between three to six uh so you um you know the, the, the then you've got your gauge pad and then uh, up from that you start your gauge cutters uh which are attached to uh which are attached to you know say it's a five bladed bit five different blades <clears throat> And so then that is when everything kind of gets intermixed. Um, and then aside from your, your blade and your cutters, you've got a, a, a junk slot that, which is fed by nozzles, which is, you know, the, the, the bit is hollow, uh, which allows the mud to flow, flow through it. So in a, in a sense, it's as complicated as we could make a sheer, drill bit that you would use in your house uh it instead of having two two blades that cut through we've got between three and nine uh you know depending on the application so it, it it's quite the uh 
it, it's impressive how complicated we can make something that that's basic action is just shearing rock. Are there some factors specifically? I mean, so you've mentioned application several times, but is it, uh, I've heard folks talk about, oh, I want, I prefer a five blade bit versus a six blade. Um, and, and you hear some of those sort of things. So is it, is most of that adapting to, for example, a harder rock or a more ductile rock or, or um, very high level? What are the, what are the factors that may, make you maybe alter a configuration uh, for a formation, I guess? Yeah, so obviously the, the type of rock that we're cutting. So let's say, let's say we're in the, in the Hainesville, <clears throat> which is high mud weight, uh, soft, soft rock. Um, and, you know, that, that's an application where it's not abrasive and uh, where we can get aggressive, which is where we would normally drop blade, uh, blade count. Uh, I say that with the caveat of you can get aggressive with, with high blade count, you can get aggressive with, you can get passive with low blade count. So, but the general trend is the lower the blade count, the more aggressive the, uh, the bit is. But yeah, in that play, we, we drop, we drop the blade count uh, as, mu- as much as possible because we, we don't have to worry about the uh, the heating and uh, the the breakage and, and cutters that we see uh, in abrasive rock, and then if you you know then you go up to Oklahoma and the scoop and the uh, stack and you've got much more abrasive rock. So we're looking at higher blade counts, more diamond volume, and uh, even different cutters because they're they're being used in a different manner. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, no, that, that actually, I, yeah, I learned something new today. Uh, so I have a question for you and, and maybe you can debunk or confirm a myth for me, but as a beginning mud engineer, a lot of times you hear, you know, there's always these seven, you know, seven reasons or seven uh, purposes of a drilling fluid or whatever, maybe there's more, but, uh, and, and one of them people always jump to, well, the, the mud is used to cool the bit. And I don't know if that's actually true. Have you heard that? Is that something on the drill bit side that you guys are like, oh, thank goodness for mud, because it sure cools the bit. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, cooling the bit, and, and we'll get into this later, and, that, and that's been an evolution. Cooling the bit is one of the most important things uh, that we can do because, at the, because of the, how we construct diamond cutters, there's, it's graphite and cobalt, that cobalt expands at a higher rate than uh, than the graphite. So if it gets too hot uh, too quickly, it, it starts to separate, and then you no longer hmm. have any cutting elements. Okay, so there is some truth to that. I mean, I, I figured there was, and I'm glad someone technically could clear it up. So would there ever be value, I guess, if let's say you're in West Texas, 100 degrees, you know, your surface temperature on in your mud is over 100 degrees, uh, is there, would there be benefit or value to cooling the mud? I mean, there's such thing as mud coolers, but is that, cause that, you don't hear it very often, especially on, you know, in us land, is that something that would actually add a lot of value or would it be marginal at best? It would, it would be, it would be marginal because by the time it gets down the drill string to the drill bit, um, it would, it would be heated up and, and, and likely be near, near what, what the, the bottom hole temperature is. The other thing gotcha. is where where the <clears throat> mud interacts with the the cutter. The cutter is actually is buried in the rock, so that is actually a place where the cutter is starved. 
which is why we try to cool it as much as possible because we can't actually get to the cutting, uh, the, the piece that's cutting the rock. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, well, I think that steers us in a good direction to talk about, you know, what other uh, contributing factors does drilling fluid have on bit performance? And, and you can kind of start wherever you think makes the most sense. I know you mentioned mud weight, but I'll kind of let you take the stage and, and maybe hit on, on, you know, starting with the most important and, and we'll kind of see where that leads us. Yeah. So I think it's uh, obviously easiest to talk about the extremes. Um, and I already, already mentioned Haynesville, which uh, seems like a preeminent play in 2020 with it. Yeah. 20, 25 rigs or whatever is there. Um, yeah. But in that, in that production interval, um, that's a place where we, we have to take it. And I remember when I was designing PDCs was where, when the Haynesville uh, uh, blew up and we had to make the junk slot as large as possible because the, the, the drilling fluid being so, um, so heavy and having to carry, carry away the drilling fluid and the rock, all we had, all we could do was keep the open face volume, which is, um, the sum of the, the volumes of all the junk slot, we could just we had to just keep opening those up more and more. And you know, CFD will actually tell you to go the other direction, and it will tell you to shrink junk slots because then you get more streamlined flow, and and it's you know it's more directed. The problem is we've learned over and over again uh, that we can't we. It, it's not taking into the the viscousness and everything and how heavy the the mud and what happens to the shale when it interacts uh, w with the mud, right? Hmm. And then I was gonna say on the uh, on the flip side, if you look at your as you get into larger bits and you're drilling, you know, salt sections, that's where that's where it uh, you know mud weight tends to come less 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 of a concern for us like you usually and obviously this goes into because because we we set casing strings we always go from large bit at the top to small bit at at the bottom but having having you know the, the larger the bit the more real estate we have we have to play with so right that that allow we already have big open open base so that's actually where we want to make sure we're directing flow and we're doing things with the bit body and the nozzle configuration to make sure that we are, are being able to get energy out to the shoulder because that shoulder is, all, is, is also moving at a higher rate uh, just because of this radial velocity of a 12 and a quarter inch bit versus a six and three quarter. You know, it's moving, mm. it's moving at that cutter is experiencing uh, more velocity, which is going to heat it up uh, faster. Interesting. So is there, with regards to when you go talk to an operator who's going to be drilling well, do you, are one of the inputs for your sort of plan or, or for your bit design is, is like, obviously mud weight plays a pretty big role or is it kind of, I mean, I guess how much impact does it have on when you actually design and deploy a bit? And are there other properties of the drilling fluid that you consider as well? So I would, uh, I would 
at this at this point, uh, and maybe this is because the applications uh, as far as you know, Haynesville, West Texas, uh, you know, Midcon, Bakken, there, the mud white being driven by your uh, your your formation. What you know, how, how much you need to keep your 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 borewall and how much you can overpower it with, right? So there's we we have a general window of what what we know the mud weights are as big companies through various areas so mm-hmm. we don't we i guess we've already taken in th- those into account um as we start and iterate one of okay. one of the places that uh it, it does come in play is thinking about lcm and those other things that that, that are part of mud uh, that could possibly clog up a nozzle and that's what what might drive some decisions to use use either a larger nozzle or a different type of nozzle versus um, where the optimum one to uh, clean and cool a bit. Okay, so you mentioned different products. Uh, obviously, on the MWD side and directional drilling side, it, it, they're always weary about you know which products are being added at what concentration at what size. Um, you know, I guess we work around downhole tools because ultimately there's certain tools that are required to drill the well. Um, do you ever find that, uh, like the TFA or the, you know, uh, the jet nozzle sizes are, do you ever have to adjust those depending on what the expected, uh, mud, uh, chemicals being added are? Does that ever play a big role in, in sort of, you know, bit planning? Uh, not with the mud, mud chemicals, but we uh, where it does come into play and has become more and more prominent is uh, getting the correct pressure drop, uh, having having the right TFA for mm. uh, rotary steerable systems because okay. they're getting more and more popular, and that's uh, you know that that's something we we have to contend with. Like we have to match this TFA, therefore we have to. Uh, the bit design has to work with that TFA and, and clean and cool a bit. Uh, you know, in, in general, the, the chemicals or the salinity of uh, the, the drilling fluid might have more to do with how it maybe corrodes a steel body bit, how mm. it, uh, you know, how, if it's, if it's, Heavy mud weight and viscous, it can carry. It can carry a lot of. And you're in a, like the oil sands in Canada, and you're in, in an abrasive environment. It can start to erode the bit, quite a bit. Right. So there's a that that's kind of, that's that's where the 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 drilling fluid and the bit, and you know how we, I guess how we might look at it in a in a given application, uh, come play. Okay. So. Can you, and and you may or may not be able to explain, but I've always heard the higher the mud weight, the slower the ROP. So everyone, you know, lower your, lower your mud weight to maximize ROP. Can you describe the relationship between that? And and if there is one, or if there's any truth to that, or. Yeah, there's a, no, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. There's a, it's actually, um, when, when we look at, you know, higher mud weights versus, um, versus ROP, the, uh, the, the, there's actually a direct correlation, and that's because 
it holds the cuttings on the, the bottom of the hole. And when it does that, it, it, it's harder for the bit to take a new fresh cut of rock. Hmm. So the higher, so the, if you have a higher density, it wants to have, it doesn't want to kind of clean it, around the bit. Yeah. It doesn't want to clean off the face of the bit as much because it's keeping, um, in, in that, in that junk slot, it's keeping, uh, it's keeping cuttings on the, on the, the floor, the bottom of, of the hole, which is huh. um, impeding the progress of, of the bit, which is why I keep saying the Hainsville bit, but it's a, it's a probably one of the places where mud and bits come having one of the bigger interactions. But okay. they, uh, uh, it, if you look at the, the un, undefined, uh, unconfined com, uh, compressive strength of that rock, you'd think we could drill it. I mean, we'd be, we'd be doing these 8,000 feet per day laterals we're doing in West Texas. Uh, yeah. You, like it, the, the rock is twice as hard in, in West Texas, but yet we can only drill, you know, 120 foot per hour versus 300 foot per hour in West Texas. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, and, and a lot of that is driven by the amount of solids, right? So, you know, the plastic viscosity affects our, our rate of penetration. So, you know, that's the reason clear brine fluids, if you can keep them really, really clear, drill really fast. It just turns out that if I needed a 14 pound brine, I would be paying a ton of money for it, but it would drill yes. much, much faster than a weighted mud that has lots of bayrite in it because your plastic viscosity might go from something in the forties to two or three. Um, so I think, I think a lot of it's driven by those solids bumping into each other and, and, you know, mobility. Um, so solids as a, as a component overall of, of the mud. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it. I mean, it's the same reason that we drill under balance sometimes, right? Is is we expect we could drill a little faster. No, absolutely. Right. I mean, managed pressure drilling. The the reason we do that is so we can have a mud weight that's lower than needed, but still keep the 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 whole whole wall in contact or in, uh, together, right? Yeah. No, that's a great point. And so, um, you know, I think that's probably a great place to to end this episode. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of good takeaway from here. Matt, do you have any other questions, uh, you know, with regards to mud weight and different mud properties and how that affects bit performance or any questions for Sterling on, on bits themselves? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I have more. I hope as we, as we dig into the series a little bit more, I'll, I'll save a few of those, but I, I just think it's, it's really interesting because I, I mean, obviously the mud's really important for helping drill, you know, help it, helping the bit perform. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we kind of have to adapt to one another in as much as we accept what, uh, you know, what the nozzle area is and, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, uh, Sterling and his considerations is going to take into account mud weight and, and, you know, sort of a, the typical fluid properties that we say we, we would need. Um, but we might not necessarily understand why one affects the other or, you know, normally we just accept it for what it is. So I'm excited to just continue to dig into um these factors even if it might not change the way we we handle our own business just uh it's really helpful to know how the whole um machine works so that's all that's all i have yeah. most definitely well uh on the next episode i think you know we talked a little bit about bit hydraulics but uh, i think diving a little bit deeper into that would be good and then you're just talking about improving performance and applications where energy 
uh, hasn't really increased over time. Uh, and so I think, you know, there's certainly some other topics we can dive into. And if anyone out there, uh, you know, we're pre-recording these, but we always say if, if you have any questions or if you'd like to reach out and, and further dive into certain topics, we're happy to do so. I'm sure Sterling, uh, you know, you're an open book and super knowledgeable. So uh, Sterling, if people have more questions about bit technology or just drill bits in general, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Uh, that'd be uh, shoot me an email at srobinson at V-A-R-E-L-I-N-T-L dot com. So barrelintl dot com. Awesome. Well, we'll put the link in the show notes there. And then, uh, you know, obviously LinkedIn, you're on LinkedIn and we'll make sure and, uh, you know, you know, point people in your direction if they have any more drill bit questions. And uh, yeah, so folks, for the next episode, like I said, we've got some other things to unpack and definitely looking forward to it. And, you know, again, if you could, please support the show by leaving a quick review. Also, if you have a great story or just any comments, please hop on LinkedIn or send us an email at fullinepodcast at aesfluids.com. Sterling, thanks again for your time today. Looking forward to catching up for episode two. Sounds good. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.